Hi, I'm Roger Blackmore. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis Church on Long Island in New York. Thanks for downloading our podcast. I hope it's a blessing to you. If you want to learn a bit more about our church, then check out our website, genesisli.com. And of course, if you live within traveling distance of us, we'd love to see you in person on Sunday morning, worshiping with us. So here's today's message. Enjoy. Thank you, Roger, for that warm welcome. It's so wonderful to be here. Um, it's a particular joy to renew friendship and fellowship with Roger. He was 18 when I first met him. And, um, but even at 18, he had a kind of a gravitas. Um, I remember one of the students saying, he's only 18. He looks a lot older, doesn't he? <laughs> well, I was 21, so I was a lot older when we first met. And he used to do a lot of preaching, even in those days, as an 18-year-old student. And one of the places he went to regularly was a church in a town called Purley in Surrey, where there was a vast congregation of somewhere between 8 and 12 people regularly on a Sunday morning. And we went on one occasion, a number of students went to support him, to hear him preach. And... um, I thought, my, this guy can preach. (laughs) And afterwards, when we were walking home, one of the other students said to me, did you see him this morning? You'd think he was preaching to 500 people. He was turning this way and that way, and he was addressing us as if they were a huge crowd. You'd think he was preaching to 500. I said, well, maybe he will. Maybe it's a preparation for greater things. I think I got that right, don't you? I think I got that right. And it's such a joy to see him uh, recovering so well after his recent enforced absence from church. Um, You had something called Converse Sunday, didn't you? I I mean, churches do have special celebrations like Harvest Festival and things like that. I've never heard of a church that has Converse Sunday. But of course... It was the day when Roger was coming back after his enforced absence wearing his signature footwear, which he's wearing this morning. He's wearing pink ones this morning, and and we are both wearing pink shirts this morning, and that is completely coincidental. When we came downstairs, here we were, dressed in pink, and somebody said before the service, well, real men wear pink. (laughs) So there's at least two of us today, Roger. So um, I wore my converse on that Sunday as an act of solidarity because I knew he was coming back to church. (laughs) And um, I sent him a photograph of my feet just to confirm that I was wearing converse. So it's lovely to be on this Sunday and to share with you in this beginning of a series on grace. And I'm going to be talking about grief and grace this morning. I'd like to read some verses from the Scriptures first of all. So we begin with a reading, a short reading from from Hebrews. Hebrews. 
And we're in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace, grace to help in time of need. And we'll go to 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. And reading from verse 6. For God, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And I like the message Bible for that verse. So we are not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart. On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. Not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. I have three grandsons, awesome boys, all of them. The newest one is just 20 months old, and then there's a big gap, and there's Jamie. George is the newest one, a little bundle of life and joy, and there's a big gap, and then there's Jamie, who is 13 years old, and then two years, and there's Joseph, who is 15 years old. Never did a little boy receive so much loving care and attention from his older brothers as our little George does. But it's not so long ago that Jamie was the youngest brother. And I remember when he was five, saying to me one day, he said, Grandpa, I wish I had a mouse they wouldn't die. And then he thought for a moment and he said, but they all die, don't they? And I said, yeah, they do. You mean you would like a little pet, a mouse, that would be with you always? Yes, he said. But they die, don't they? Well, yes, they do, Jamie. Eventually, they do. Then he thought for a moment longer and he said, Grandpa, will I die? Well, I didn't really want to answer that question, 
But I said, well, listen, Jamie, you don't need to worry about that at all because you won't die until you're very, very old. And he looked at me and said, Grandpa, you're very, very old. <laughs> you're very, very old already. So I was working hard to help him not to be confronted with his mortality. And he was working equally hard to make sure that I was confronted with my mortality. You're very, very old already. But the reality is we don't need to be reminded of the fact that we all will die. We face our own mortality. We all will die. But also we all, therefore, will suffer grief and loss and bereavement. It's inevitably a part of human experience, isn't it? It's inevitably part of life's journey. There are many different kinds of grief, too. A divorce can be a kind of grief and bereavement when you set out with high hopes and deep and real commitment and you're anticipating a lifelong marriage and then suddenly somehow things go badly wrong and there's a deep sense of loss and grief and there may be acrimony and pain and it's a difficult journey and you need grace in the midst of that grief. You need grace in the midst of that grief. Childlessness can be another kind of grief, an unfocused grief, a couple who have longed for and yearned for a child to hold, to love, to care for, and to raise, and somehow are denied that opportunity. Then there's an unfocused grief that is very real, and they yearn for the baby that they will never have. They long for the child that they will never hold. And that can be a very deep and real grief. And you need grace, grace in the midst of that kind of grief. Last year, I went to Australia to stay with my good friends Dave and Margaret Ingham in Perth. And they have a daughter called Charlotte. Daughters called Charlotte seem to do extraordinary things, don't they? <laughs> and this Charlotte runs a class in a women's prison, a class that brings hope to the women, enables them to reorientate their lives towards grace and hope and a future. And uh, she asked me to go in and speak to them about grief. I was interested to discover that they knew exactly what grief was about. They could relate to what I was saying because they had experienced their own kind of grief. Grief at the loss of freedom, grief concerning the hurt and harm they'd done to their own families in some instances, grief because of the loss of hope. And they understood about grief, and they needed what Charlotte was giving them, a message of hope and renewal and purpose and grace. They needed grace in the midst of their grief. We all do. Whatever our path of grief, and inevitably it comes upon us in this life, we need grace. We need grace. Well, the good news is there in the book of Hebrews that we come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find grace to help in the time of need. And it doesn't just mean that in the midst of the emergency we come to the throne of grace, but that daily, daily we come to the throne of grace so that when the time of need arises, we have resources of grace to draw upon. 
When the time of need is visited upon us, then we draw upon resources of grace that we have already been receiving. Of course, it's all right to come in the emergency, when the crisis is on, to the throne of grace, and God will pour His grace upon us. But there's something so valuable in coming daily to the throne of grace so that when the need arises, we have resources of grace to draw upon. And Paul writes of the fact that though he had experienced this something that he calls a buffeting by Satan, a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed three times that God would remove it, but God did not remove it. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And in the weakness that we experience in the midst of our grief, we can know the perfection of divine strength through the operation of grace. For God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Even in the darkest moments, in the most difficult aspects of our journey, this remains true. This remains the undergirding reality. Here is a bottom line. My grace is sufficient for you. Always and every day we can experience the unfolding daily reality of God's grace to sustain us and to lift us in our loss and in our pain. Back in 2015, at the beginning of the year, my life was just about perfect, I felt. Uh, my wife and I were moving towards retirement. I was almost 68, and I promised her that I'd retire at 68, and that uh, although I'd still be preaching and doing various things, I'd no longer be responsible for the three churches that I was leading in South Yorkshire. And so we had a sense of joyous excitement, a kind of childlike excitement, anticipating my retirement and getting to do more of the things that we enjoyed doing together. And we made a list. It ran into several pages of all the things that we planned to do. And I was retiring on Easter Sunday, 2015. That was the 5th of April in 2015. So at the beginning of the year, life was really good. We were in great health the two of us, and when we came to the 10th of January, all was good. We used to do something called the park run on a Saturday morning. I'm not sure that it's universally around in the USA, but it is in the United Kingdom. There's over 50,000 runners that run 5K every Saturday morning, and uh, we used to do that together. And then you get a printout, a readout of your statistics. And so after we'd done that, on that Saturday morning, Barbara said, oh, look, I was the first female in my age category this morning. That's pretty good. And I looked and I said, yeah, I was the first male in my age category. And she raised one eyebrow and said, were you, you the only one? <laughs> so I had to confess that I was the only one doesn't have quite the same kudos when you win a race, but you're the only one running it, you know. So we had a great day. It was just a wonderful day. And then that night when we went to bed, we were anticipating Sunday. And in the middle of the night, she became ill. She got up saying, I feel nauseous. I'm going to get up. 
So I began to get up too, and she said, don't, don't you get up. There's no point in us both having a disturbed night. But then she became very cold and very confused, and I became very anxious and ran, rang my daughter, who said, I'm on my way, Dad. When she came into the house, suddenly Barbara started with seizures, seizures that, that uh, were violent, body-racking seizures, her arms flailing in spasm. It was terrible to witness. She was taken to hospital, and on the way to hospital, she had another seven seizures, and I thought I was losing my darling that night. She was put into a, a coma, a, a, a medically-induced coma, to deal with the seizures, and she came round. She came round the next day, confused, disorientated, but back with us again, and the whole family gathered. Well, that was the beginning of a journey, a terrible journey, our lives changed in an instant. And we discovered later on in the March that she had a brain tumor. On the 20th of April, she had an operation to remove the brain tumor. And 10 days later, we sat in the doctor's office and uh, he smiled at us. And that we felt that was reassuring. And he said, well, I was able to remove the whole tumor, the operation was a success. We smiled at each other and thought, that's good news. And he said, we looked at it under the microscope and there were cells that were benign and we smiled at one another and thought, better news. But then he added, but we also found pools of aggressive malignant cells and diffusion has already taken place. And I'm afraid it's not good news. You have a brain tumor that is an aggressive cancer. And Barbara leaned forward in her seat. And she was always very positive. And with a big, broad smile, she said, but you're not telling me that I'm going to die, are you? And he was wrong-footed by that. And he said, no, 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 we're talking about living, not dying. But really, they were talking about dying. It was the longevity was expected to be 18 months. And it was 18 months from the day that she took ill on the 11th of January to the 11th of July the following year that she died. When we knew that she only had a few months left, the doctors had spelled it out very clearly. We stood in the kitchen and we held each other and wept. And she said, I can't believe that I have to leave you in a few months. And then she added, you should write a book about this. Which is a, quite an extraordinary thing to say. You should write a book about this. And instinctively, she knew that it would be good for me to write about it, to process my grief, to face the reality of grief and to put it into words and to process it. She knew that that would be good for me, therapeutic for me. And I think she also knew that it would be good for others who may be on a similar journey who need to know something of how God's grace can operate during days of darkness and grief and bereavement. And that has certainly proved to be the case because the feedback has been extraordinary. That's the book, by the way. And uh, there's some 
out there today if anybody wants to get a copy afterwards. And so the, the, the book was written. And uh, our lives changed so dramatically, so very dramatically. And we gathered around her bed when she died, the children and myself. We thank God for a life that was radiant, a life that was joyous, a life that was lived to the full. And we thank God for the legacy that she left behind. When the family, my, my son and daughter-in-law and children lived in America for two periods of time, three years in Georgia and three years in Texas. My son is an officer in the Royal Air Force and he was seconded to the American Air Force for three years, um, Georgia, three years in Texas. So they were given a really lovely house by the British Embassy to live in, in Texas, in San Antonio. And we went to visit them as often as we could and had some lovely holidays with them, my wife and I. And uh, we had space, very spacious house, three bathrooms. The boys had their own wonderful room, and they had a, a den, a kind of living room area, and uh, their own bathroom. And in the living room area, in the den, they could, they could do their homework, supposedly. Not much of that went on, but they played their games and their computer games and all that kind of thing there in that space. So when their time in Texas was coming to an end, and they were moving back to the UK, the little one, who was the little one at the time, Jamie, he said to his mom, Mom, how many rooms are Joe and I going to have in our new house? And she said, one. One, he said, only one, really in deep shock. But we'll have our own bathroom, won't we? She said, no, you won't have your own bathroom. There'll be one bathroom in that house for the whole household. He put his hands out like this in a look of despair and desperation and said, but how are we going to live? How are we going to live? And his mom said, We'll live very well, you'll see. Life will be good. And so it was, and she was right. How are we going to live? <laughs> we were amused by it. But that statement, how are we going to live, is a very real question for many people. How am I going to live with this awful burden of grief? How am I going to live with this pain in the hollow of my chest? How am I going to live here on the jagged edges of desperation? How am I going to live? How am I going to live through this grief and through this darkness? How am I going to live? Well, the answer is grace. Grace. My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. 
And it doesn't just mean that somehow we'll gather up our ragged resources so that we can exist, just exist. No, we will live. We will live with the assurance that God is with us every step of the journey. We will live with the warmth of God's love affirming us. We will live every step encouraged by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We will live by God's amazing grace and a life that is truly living and not just existing. For His word to us in our grief, in our darkest valley, is I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Life and full life can be experienced by those who have come through the dark valleys of despair and grief and bereavement to the realization that the living God is with us and He will never leave us, never forsake us and sustain us on every step of the journey for my grace is sufficient for me. In 2017, you may have heard this on the news, there was a terrible fire in London in Grenville Tower, which was a high-rise block. And it was consumed by flames. The cladding on the outer of the building was the wrong kind of cladding. It was combustible. And the whole tower went up and over 70 people died. Gabby Doherty wrote a book called Grenville Hope. She lived just a couple of hundred yards away from the tower with her husband who was a minister. And when they saw what had happened, they went out to help those who were bereaved, sat alongside those who were hurting, ministered to families who were in total shock and terrible desperation and despair. And Gabby spent the coming weeks, the following weeks after the fire, reassuring her own four children who were traumatized by the event, as well as ministering to those, along with her husband, uh, who were in such desperate, desperate need. And she said, I am glad about the choices I made. I chose to spend time with my friends. I chose to care for those around me. When life deals you a bad hand, you will also have to make choices. You will have to make choices. God can fuel you, or you can forget Him and blame Him. She said, I chose to submit and to submerge myself in Him. I prayed. I looked for purpose in everything. I tried to keep myself functioning, loving, and healthy. It's hard to find purpose in everything when you're living in the shadow of a blackened tower where 70 people had died. And you can't see God in that event. Of course you can't. But you can see God in the coming together of a community of care. You can see God in the ministry of people one to another, to those who are hurting and broken. You can see God in purpose and in the outpouring of generosity. So in the experience of grief, when you choose the path of love, you find the path of purpose as we walk in God's grace. So, God's unfolding grace is an ever-present reality for us in our lives through the journey of grief. 
I used to be a pastor of a church in North Wales. North Wales is a very beautiful country. It's part of the United Kingdom. Um, Scotland is also quite nice, but Wales... <laughs> so, I was on the coast there in Prestatyn in North Wales. And we had a lady in our church called Peggy, an elderly lady. And she told me about when she was a little girl. She said she... Um, always used to come to North Wales on holiday. She lived on, in Stoke-on-Trent, which you've heard of Stoke-on-Trent, you know? <laughs> and some people call it Smoke-on-Stench, but that was never true, was it? Never true. <laughs> she lived in Stoke-on-Trent, and every year they came to a place called Llandidno on holiday. And Llandidno is a beautiful resort, a majestic and glorious place. And you come up Penryn Bay Hill to the top of the hill, and then you see Llandidno stretched out before you. Well, they always traveled in the motor, on the motorbike. Dad was on the bike, and in the sidecar was little Peggy and her mum. And when Dad got to the top of that hill and saw that vista, the circle of the bay, the great orm, this great raggy, craggy cliff stretching out into the sea, and uh, the beautiful gleaming white pier and the majestic Georgian houses and hotels. He was so always so awestruck and excited by the view that he used to take off his cap and throw it into the air in a gesture of joy and gladness. Then he had to stop his motorbike and go back and collect his cap. <laughs> and little Peggy used to shriek for joy every year as a dad uh, went back to get his cap and walked back to the motorbike. It seems to me that we have a vision of a future that is so perfect, so glorious, that when we pass the last horizon in this life and we see the vista of eternity stretched out before us in all its glory, in all its insurpassable beauty, well, whether you've got a cap, you'll want to throw something, maybe your hands, in joy and thanksgiving for all that God has prepared for those who love Him. There's an old prayer, we give our loved one back to you, O God, just as you first gave them to us and did not lose them in the giving, so we haven't lost them in returning them to you. For life is eternal and love is immortal and death is only a horizon and the horizon is nothing but the limit of our earthly sight. Lift us up, strong Son of God, that we may see further. Cleanse our eyes that we may see more clearly. Draw us closer to yourself that we may know ourselves to be nearer to our loved ones who are with you. Death is only a horizon. And when we crest the brow of the hill and we see that vista opening up before us, of the eternity of God's glory, where eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love Him, then our hearts will sing for joy, and all the past will be forgotten, all the pain will be over, and all the bliss and perfection of heaven in all its glorious fullness will stretch out before us. That's the hope. And that's the reality. And that's what grace is leading us to. Step by step, daily, God's unfolding grace will lead us to the 
eternal joy of that glorious morning when we enter fully and finally into the presence of the King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to live in the reality of your grace. Sustain daily whatever we are called upon to travel through. May grace take us every step of the way, ultimately into the perfection of your healing and holy presence. Amen.